My global IQ is 109. Well, hello everyone. I'm Jim Falk. And thanks so much for joining us for what I know will be a really very interesting conversation with Parag Khanna. He's the founder and managing partner of the global strategic uh, advisory firm, uh, FutureMap. He has worked with a number of great organizations, the World Economic Forum, the Council on Foreign Relations, Brookings Institution, the New American Foundation, and the National, the National University of Singapore. He's the best-selling author of six books, including The Future is Asian, Conf uh, Commerce, Conflict, and Culture in the 21st Century, which came out last year, as well as Connectography, Mapping the Future of Global Civilization. Thanks again for being with us. So good to see you again, Jim. Thanks for having me in the program. So let's just start because I've, I've heard a number of your podcasts. I, I listened to it. I remember last year when we first talked about your, your most recent publication. And, you know, to, to really begin the conversation, we need to understand Asia because, you know, it's a little bit like how people look at the United States. Oh, it's New York and Los Angeles. Well, Asia is a lot more than Tokyo and Beijing. That's exactly right. And by the way, this is not my definition. Geographers are not in disagreement about what Asia is. Much of what we call the Middle East is actually West Asia in geographical terms. It's not only West Asia in geographical terms, it's also diplomatically Asians, the people who we tend to think of as the real Asians, meaning Chinese and Indians and, and Indonesians and Japanese, think of Saudi Arabia and Turkey and Iran as West Asia because it is West Asia. It's not the Middle East. The Middle East is how British refer to things and that's where we picked it up but it's flatly wrong from a geographical standpoint. And one of the things that I've uh, been pointing out is that over the last 30 years, and it was 30 years ago, Jim, who, who can imagine how quickly time has gone by? The Cold War ended, the Berlin Wall fell, the Soviet Union collapsed. Since that time, all of those countries have become much more tied to China, India, Japan, Korea, and so forth than to us, right? We don't need their oil. Um, you know, we're, we're diminishing our commitment there after uh, Afghanistan and Iraq, whereas these countries are trading and investing much more. So China is the largest foreign investor and trade partner for many Arab countries. Uh, most of the population, almost all the foreign population of the Persian Gulf countries is actually Indians, right, and Pakistanis. Uh, and Bangladeshis, right? Hundreds of, you know, several, tens of millions of them. So this is an Asian zone. So one other point is that um, for most people, okay, fine, Asia is big, it's four and a half billion people, but basically it's whatever China wants, right? China is the dominant power, China gets what it wants. Well, that was, if I had to give one motivation, but there were four or five kind of bugbears for me that motivated me to do the Asia book, Number one was probably this, because Asia, unlike Western regions like Europe, North America or the European Union, is not one civilization. It does not share a civilization. It has six major civilizational pillars that are quite discreet from each other, like Chinese, Indian, the Southeast Asian, even the Turkic, Persian cultures are entirely discreet, unique, civilizations. They all coexist in Asia. So Asia is a different logic, different history, 
entirely different geopolitical background, different circumstances. And so there is, there's never been, other than the Mongols 750 years ago-ish, there has been no single dominant power in all across the full landscape of Asia. And my contention is there never will be. And that includes China. China does not dominate all of Asia today. China will never dominate all of Asia. Now, I'll be blunt, Jim, to me, this is common sense. I'd like to think that after you know reading the history in brief and, and, and seeing my argument, it kind of becomes common sense to everyone else as well. But as you well know, this has got to be perhaps the biggest misconception in the entire world today is that China rules the world and gets what it wants. The truth is very plain to see it doesn't and it won't. You know, one of the things that I, I really got out of reading your book is you know, we tend to think that everything has to be sort of bipolar looking at China and the United States, but Asia over the last two decades, or at least the last 15 years, has really done a very good job of building up its own regional institutions. And I wonder if you might comment on, on that. Sure. And that was, you know, one of the other bugbears is sort of, you know, Asia is whatever we want it to be, you know, how's our alliance system faring? Our you know, liberal world China? order. Exactly, exactly. And even not, the, not even the global part of it, but even the Asia part of it, our post-war alliance system, our U.S.-Japan relationship, our increasing uh, ties with, uh, with India, you know, our efforts to back Taiwan and contain China. The truth is that's all outside in. And the question you are rightly asking is, what about the inside out? And the inside out it relates to economic issues. It relates to strategic and diplomatic issues as well, all weaving themselves together. So, uh, you know, let, let's start with economics. Um, that helps us to understand a bit what has been happening in the last, um, you know, as you said, over the last couple of decades. The world has become very tripolar economically. Um, you've got a North American zone, a European zone, and an Asian zone. And Asia, by the way, is the largest. Uh, it's 50% of global GDP, as you see with these bubbles uh, on the right. So 50% of the world GDP in PPP terms is Asian. So China, the largest, and India, and so forth. Now, all of these Asian circles trade much more with each other than with the rest of the world, uh, have much more investment across each other's borders than with the rest of the world. There's more flows of people, business travelers, tourists, students internally than with the rest of the world. Um, they now share institutions like the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, Asian Development Bank, so on and so forth. They do not have a security council. They do not have a European Union. They do not have a Euro currency. They never will. We don't measure the extent to which Asia has, a, you know, baseline of common institutions that help it regulate its relations based on European standards, or rather we should not. We tend to, but that's wrong. Asia will do what Asia will do. And it's our job to understand the extent to which they are increasingly collaborating, even if they don't have peace. They don't have to have peace. They don't have to look like the European Union. Most of the world's conflict scenarios, almost all the world's major conflict scenarios are in Asia. So my argument is not a peace conflict is one of the words in the subtitle of the book, after all. Um, I'm fully aware and examine every one of those scenarios. So you don't have to have peace to have cooperation. You don't have to, have, right? You can have this, you know, 
this set of institutions that they have been building. And we see that again occurring uh, uh, in the in the Asian landscape. So uh, yeah, so Asians, you know, I mean, the most significant or the most talked about has been China's Belt and Road Initiative. You know, and to what extent are countries uh, collaborating, you know, strongly, or are they subjugating themselves to China and so forth? So the Belt and Road vision encompasses, you know, much of the known world. What you see on this map is everything except the Western Hemisphere and Antarctica. Right. But what you have here, remember that the entire Western Hemisphere, Canada, United States, Mexico, Central America, South America, add all of that up and you've got less than one billion people. But Jim, as you and, and all of your listeners know, there is there's about eight billion people in the world. Right. So the vast majority of humanity lives on this map right here. Here you've got it. Nice angular, cur you know, nice curvature so you can get in much of Africa. Right. This is the vast, vast majority of the human population. This is all the fast growing markets in the world because Jim, we are not a fast growing market. <laughs> um, uh, you know, um, all of the markets that are still growing at all are on this map. Almost all of the growth in trade every year is on this map. And all of the new infrastructure projects that are connecting markets to each other, the supply and the demand. What is, what is the market? It's supply and demand. All of that is happening here on this map. And as you can see, again, it's not all China dominant. It's everyone connecting to everyone. Every you know, week when you live out here in Asia, as I do, every week you read about a new Silk Road project. Some have to do with China. Some have nothing to do with China. India is working with Iran, with the Caucasus countries, with Russia to create a north-south Silk Road, right? Uh, that kind of stuff is flourishing. So everyone getting connected to everyone else is what this process is about. And in the end, we'll find that China's very, very, very important, just like the United States will always be a superpower and be very important. But China will matter where it matters, and we will matter where we matter. But everyone else also matters too. And you know, I'm trying to create this sort of inclusive vision where the rest of Asia, the other three and a half billion Asians, they've got a lot of ambitions for themselves. And none of those involve, by the way, being like China. And this is, again, one of these critical things that was the motivating factor for me. The more you live near China, the less you want to be like China. And this is one of these phenomena that people don't appreciate. Right now with this pandemic, Jim, as you know, we've got a lot of conversations with people saying, you know, is China's mask diplomacy, you know, the surgical mask diplomacy and health diplomacy with ventilators, are they reclaiming the narrative? Are they claiming that they beat the virus and we've been so awful in our response to the virus, therefore they are going to be number one. I think that's gotta be the, the best joke of the year in this tragic you know, situation that we're in. Now, because imagine for a minute that you are one of the, you know, again, four billion people outside of China that's in the broader Asian region. You wake up every day knowing. So again, we're talking about the majority of the human population, Jim, lives in this sort of rough time zone. It's morning, like where I am, or early morning. They wake up every day knowing where this virus came from. No Chinese diplomat on Twitter is going to convince them that this is not a Chinese virus, right? So when we have these conversations in Washington or New York or in the Twitter sphere, that China is winning the narrative, I say to myself, just relax. Spend two minutes in Asia and you'll realize that no one trusts China. They never did trust China because they have 4,000 years of history with China and we don't. Uh, you know, um, so it's really important that we bear all of this in mind that 
the world we're moving into again is one where um, everyone is trying to limit Chinese influence. Containing China or, or managing China is not our idea, right? It's a Japanese idea. It's an Indian idea. We woke up to it after they did. We are helping them. We're helping them substantially, and we're helping them in very important ways to respond to China and to limit Chinese influence. I, I applaud uh, parts of our Asia policy over the last, you know, 20 years and our efforts to develop deeper ties with uh, with India, to sustain our ties with Japan, to help to bring out this Quad Alliance. You can see at the bottom of the screen there, maybe the Indo-Pacific Quad. The term Indo-Pacific is a Japanese uh, coinage, and India has picked it up. And it's about the unity of the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean realms that come together at the Strait of Malacca, right, which separates the Indian Pacific Ocean, which, fun fact, is uh, 500 yards to my south. You know, it's my beach, is that confluence, the Strait of Malacca. And, um, and so the Japanese and the Indians have realized they need to collaborate more. And I think rightly from the, from, from, from the U.S. standpoint, you said we need to help strengthen this Indo-Pacific. So now we've got the Indo-Pacific Command. We've got the quad relationship that helps to uh, bring together Japan, Australia, and India with us into a, into a quad framework, and all of which is helping also to try to limit China's expansionism. These are great initiatives and extremely important. So we are part of that story. But one of the things I point out um, you know, in the book is we, America is not an Asian power. We always talk about Asia's future and Asia's geopolitics as being driven by America, but sometimes we forget we are a Pacific power. We're not an Asian power. We are not a terrestrial. So, so let me ask you about this. One of the very first things that President Trump did after his inauguration was to pull out of the withdrawal from the TPP. So you know, how damaging was that to overall geostrategic position of the United States? Right. So extremely, because even though most of the world's conflict scenarios are in Asia, they think first and foremost about economics, right? Not so much, you know, uh, territorial geopolitics. They do obsess about those things. That's why you still have these conflict scenarios. So again, I'm not mitigating that. However, the reason you have not had World War III over the South China Sea, um, the uh, Senkaku uh, Islands, the Spratly or Paracel Islands, Taiwan, North Korea, is because every time they come close to bang, bang, they say, hold on, that is going to unleash this chain reaction, and that's going to derail our economic growth, and we actually still need each other pretty substantially, so let's, you know, hold off for, you know, a while, a decade, two decades, three decades. It's been three decades. The first article saying that now that the Cold War is over, this is going to unleash nationalism, national rivalry in Asia, World War III is going to break out over Taiwan, and China is the next peer competitor. That was like 1992, right? So we're coming upon 30 years where we've been saying World War III is going to happen in Asia, China is going to be at the center of it, we're going to have a war with China, um, you know, and Asia is going to be destabilized and we're going to have a new hegemonic order. That was 30 years ago. It hasn't happened yet. Now, it's great to be paranoid, right? No doubt about it, right? The paranoid win. <laughs> However, it doesn't mean the paranoid are right. Two different things, right? Um, the, those wars have them because Asians also have some control over their destiny. In fact, quite a lot, 
you know, and they've stepped back from this, uh, from this, from this brink. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. So U.S. Chinese China relations were, you know, facing some challenges over the last several years, especially when you're talking about trade, and a lot of people are uh, giving uh, good 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 uh, reviews to President Trump for some of the policies that he's pursued in China. And I'm wondering about that word decoupling of the relationship. And last night I was picked up my latest issue of of foreign affairs. And Min Chin Pei, who's a very you know, well-known uh, scholar on China, he wrote this. The events of the past few months have shown that CCP rule is far more brittle than many believe. This bolsters the case for a U.S. strategy of sustained pressure to induce political change. I, I, I thought we were out of that business. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I, I'm not going to really respond directly to his his argument. I mean, it's not it's not new, you know, for him to be saying that. I, I think we know very well how successful our sustained efforts at political change have fared in a wide number of countries. I think that a well, I mean, maybe I will respond. I don't think that anyone in Asia underestimates the brutality of the CCP. Again, you could have been living in La La Land, you know, to put it bluntly in the last like 30 years or say 70 years, quite frankly. Uh, but most people in this hemisphere, in this sphere uh, of the world were not living in La La Land. So I don't think anyone that I know, um, again, of the 5 billion people, the majority of the human population that lives in Asia, not under any illusion about what kind of country or what kind of government they're dealing with, right? Even let's remember the Chinese people, that there's a reason why the Chinese diaspora is the largest diaspora in the world, 50 million people. It's because a lot of them, generation after generation, have fled China. They fled in the 19th century, They uh, populating Southeast Asia in particular. They fled after the Chinese Civil War and on and on and on. So, you know, the, these things are not that difficult, quite frankly, to understand. Now, now let me be very clear on, on the second point that he's making. Uh, the Chinese regime is not going to change. And the more you try to change it, the less it will change. So this, this is extremely important because this is also just basic behavioral parental psychology, almost, right? You tell your kids to do something, they're not going to do it. <laughs> All right. And China's not our children anyway. Right, far from it. So China is going to be what China is going to be. It's going to have a hierarchical, centralized form of government. It always has, um, and, uh, and and therefore, you know, it's it, it may not look like today's Communist Party, but today's Communist Party doesn't look like yesterday's Communist Party or the one from twenty or thirty or forty years ago. It's a highly adapted regime. In the same publication you're citing, Foreign Affairs. There's been many good articles about what is called adaptive authoritarianism. We can't just look at a map of the world and say, they're authoritarian, they're like China. They're democratic, they're like us. 
in fact, there's a wide spectrum of regimes. In Asia, by the way, you have more people living in democracies than in non-democracies. More people live in democracies in Asia than in the rest of the planet Earth. It's a point I make very clearly in the book, just to add up the numbers. You talk about Asian values when you're talking about government structures and democracy. Would you elaborate on that? Sure. I talk about what I call the new Asian values. And this is, you know, towards the end of the book, it was really one of the toughest sections to write. I mean, we're talking about this dizzying, diverse region that includes, by the way, Israel, it includes Russia, it includes India, China, Japan, Korea. Remember that Israel is geographically an Asian country, so is Turkey, as I said, so is Saudi Arabia. Australia, New Zealand belong to the greater Asian zone. Asia is a geographic word, not a cultural word. You can make it a cultural word. I grew up as an Asian American, after all, right? Um, but the fact is, it's a geographic word. So for example, uh, when I go down to Australia, I always remind them, I say, you know, you guys are white Asians, right? <laughs> and uh, in fact, Australia is increasingly Asian, Asian populated in terms of ethnically Asian. So what could they possibly have in common, right, Jim? I mean, what could all these diverse civilizations and cultures and ethnicities and political systems, what could they possibly have in common? And that's what I meant with the new Asian values. And I said to myself, you know, if you had to say that these 5 billion people have, like we talk about Judeo-Christian values or Western, you know, heritage and, and Western values and obviously uh, democracy, liberalism, uh, you know, freedom, so forth, right? Um, what do Asians have in common? And even though they don't have democracy in common, far from it, right? You have the gold standard democracies of Japan and South Korea and Taiwan, and you've got authoritarian China and Turkmenistan and North Korea. What could they possibly have in common? And yet they do. And what they have in common is what I call technocratic governance, right? So that's of the three new Asian values, that's number one. It's this idea that whether you're a democracy or non-democracy, you want a strong executive branch with a vision a 10-year, 15-year plan for how they're going to improve and transform society. Ideally, it's an accountable executive so that you have elections, you have shifts of power and authority, you have, again, a, a sort of measurement of progress and the people can see transparently what is going on and, and have a voice in that. And even in China, that's actually the case. It's just not democratically done, but there is a voice, right? For example, they're listening to everything you're saying, right? And they actually are listening and they actually do a lot of the things that people want. They just don't do it in a democratic way, right? Um, so people defer to, let's say, there's a deference to a strong executive branch with a vision. And there is a strong desire for those governments of a strong civil service, an independent bureaucracy that is serving the people and do getting things done, no matter who the leader is. That's extremely important. Um, oh, oh, we don't need this slide right now. Um, and, and in that technocratic uh, part, let's remember, this is very important because what are the countries that have done the best in responding to the virus, right? It is South Korea, it is Taiwan, Singapore, where I live. These are, again, either, either full democracies or partial democracies, but what they have in common is very, very strong civil services. What have we done, Jim, since the 1980s, you know, in the United States, we've really let the civil service erode, right? The people, the faceless bureaucrats who selflessly go about and implement the state, right? And that's missing. In Asia, that is not missing. In Asia, that is improving. 
I have an infographic in the book, it's not, not here in this uh, deck, but it compares, it's the World Bank's rankings, not mine, right? This is, this is as independent verification as you could want. The, the effectiveness of government rankings for Asia, every country has improved, whether it's a democracy or not democracy. Just one last thing, the other part of the Asian values thing, one of the other parts of it is uh, the mixed capitalism. Again, extremely important. The state has a role in the economy, it picks champions, it subsidizes sectors, it invests in you know, leading industries, it, it, it uh, you know, has a regulatory hand. Um, there's a you know, welfare states uh, to some degree. That is not something that Asians are, uh, uh, are averse to. In fact, they embrace a strong guiding hand of the state and the economy. As you know, Jim, we, don't, we have not tended to like that until the financial crisis and then it became an emergency. And now we're in a much bigger emergency now. So we are all mixed capitalists now. I think everyone needs to be clear about that. It's now just a question of to what degree are you a mixed capitalist system? Is it just that your central bank has flooded you know, the market with liquidity to prop it up, which is not something you would do necessarily in a totally free market? Or is it a much stronger role with industrial policy the way you have in Europe, where the government is actively promoting certain sectors, exports much more than we do? or you know, bailouts and this sort of thing. But basically Asians embrace mixed capitalism. Europeans did it first and now we are doing it too. So a lot of these new Asian values are not just Asian is my point. We're all waking up to some of the things that Asians are doing. So let's remember, Asians learned a lot of these things from European colonialism. Now they do some of those things better than any of us do. And now we are learning to do those things as well as we see Asians refine them. So let me do this with you, if, you, if you'll allow. Uh, rapid fire, we got about four minutes left. So let me just hit some of these areas that we've not touched on. Uh, Hong Kong, we're certainly seeing, we had seen protests. Now they're not there the way they were, largely because of the virus. What do you expect to happen? And also because they've been arrested. Uh, yeah, remember, that's a good point. You know, um, and, and that was happening before the, uh, before the virus and it's accelerated afterwards. So uh, again, this is rapid fire, but since the handover in 1997, we've seen a very you know, rapid erosion in the kind of you know, degree of democratic freedom in the country. It's part of a much longer process that began 23 years ago. Um, sadly, you know, we don't see an exit uh, from that. So that it's going to be, you know, more and more China dominated. Paul Pass asks, what do you think is the future of ASEAN? Uh, what can they learn from the successes and failures of regional integration, such as obviously the European Union? They're learning a lot. Again, there will be no European Union, there will be no Asian Union, there will be no ASEAN Union, but they're doing a lot of the right things. A lot more supply chains coming and integrating across the region, a lot of borders coming down, a lot of freedom of mobility, across Asia, uh, across ASEAN. Um, so in, in almost every way, ASEAN is learning to bootstrap, you know, and, and, and build out complementarities. Uh, you know, again, I live in Singapore. I, I, I think of Singapore as like the capital of ASEAN in many ways, uh, unofficially. But of course, everyone comes to invest here. They learn lessons from the government here and so on. So they're going in the right, you know, it's a lot of micro things that people don't pay attention to day to day, but how to improve stock exchange regulation and integrate, you know, how to fix your investment laws and how to build your civil service and have better water sanitation. All of these things are things that Asians are learning from other Asians right now within, within ASEAN, and it's leading to improved quality of life in countries like Myanmar, uh, 
you know, uh, Indonesia, uh, Cambodia, Vietnam, and so forth. So some of these countries are very pro-China in terms of their regimes, but socially, of course, they're much, they're very much part of the polyglot, polyglot melting pot of, of ASEAN. I'm very, very bullish on this region, not just because I live here, it's really one of the only regions of the world that's growing economically and that's undertaking these reforms. So if you were in Joe, invited to be in Joe Biden's uh, basement, what would you advise that he consider if he were elected president? Wow, uh, that one's going to On take Asia. a whole other session, Jim. Uh, <laughs> you know, look, so again, as I said, some of the things we're doing in Asia policy are spot on, like the quad relationship. We're helping to build the capacity of Vietnam, of Indonesia, of the Philippines to defend themselves, to stand up for themselves, uh, you know, to help counter Chinese pressure in the South China Sea. We could be pushing more for a diplomatic settlement to some of these disputes rather than have them be lingering threats in the background that are a risk to us because of our commitment. You know, uh, in the region, we don't want to be the tripwire caught in the crossfire. Uh, you know, in, in, in this region, it's not, it's not worth it. Asians should step up and settle their own conflicts. So I'd like to see, you know, kind of some bold diplomatic initiatives in that area. I would like to see us do TPP. You know, you asked that question earlier. Um, it's been very damaging because again, economics matters, right? So investing in the region, making where you sell, um, you know, offering that high quality of products and goods and services, you know, so trading more, investing more with the region is obviously critical as well. Well, I want to thank you so much for being with us. We had lots of questions left over, but I think we, we, we managed to hit a, a number of them. And as always, I appreciate so much seeing you. Wishing you all the best, especially your wife and children. Thank you, Jim. Really appreciate it. It's so good to see you again. And uh, all of you, stay safe. Bye-bye.